Let me kick us off with prayer, and then we'll jump in with just a few comments that are going to lead us into this awesome meal this morning. So let's pray. Father, thanks so much. We thank you that you're good all the time. We thank you that you speak our language. We thank you that you comfort us. We thank you that you take the worst and you use it to make us shine. We thank you that you forgive us, you hold nothing against us, your anger, it lasts a morning and then comes your joy. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts today. Some of us, Lord, are stubborn and we resist. And I pray that you would penetrate past our defenses. Others of us, Lord, are so burdened today by circumstances that we frankly are having a hard time hearing you and having our hearts stirred in the way in which you would like to stir them with your love, with your grace. So stir us. We offer all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of you. In the strong name of Christ our Lord we pray. And all God's people said, what if I told you, give me an hour a day, do what I say, and you will feel better over the long haul. Emotionally, physically, spiritually, not constantly, but over the long haul, you will feel better. You will be more in sync with God. Your relationships will improve. You will, in fact, over time, become a better person, growing more kind and more good, more loving and more patient, more faithful and gentle and self-controlled. What if I told you, follow this directive for an hour a day and you will accomplish that? This is, in fact, exactly what we have been talking about for the last two months here at Gateway. So let's survey. We began this year with a series of conversations we called self-management. We talked about the necessity of effectively managing our time, our money, and our bodies if we want to honor God. In reality, we said our time, our money, even our bodies come to us as a gift from God. We are stewards over them, but they are not ours. Therefore, when we use our time, our money, and our bodies with wisdom and purpose, we are more consistently alive and we are more connected to God. We were talking about using our resources with wisdom and purpose. And then, at the end of January, we started our current series, How to Relate to God. The first week, we talked about prayer. We said that prayer is a critical part of a relationship with God. It is conversation with God. We said that it's important to remember when we pray, we do not come to God like merchants in a negotiation based on what we have. We come instead like lovers based on who we are and who he is. We also said we don't come to God like a boarder in a house. We come to him like a child who lives at home. The second week, we talked about the Bible. We said the Bible is another key component, a key component to our relationship with God. It's our standard, and it's our inspiration. As a result, we consult it every day. Then last week, we talked about worship. We said... We cannot healthily relate to God unless we are worshiping Him gladly. So here's the hypothesis that we've been building toward for the last two months. A hypothesis, by the way, which has been proven over and over again over the centuries. Here's the hypothesis. If we dedicate an hour a day to doing business with God, 
our lives will be better. Our relationship with God will grow. Our relationships overall will improve. We will, over time, become better people. Let me draw this up for us. Let me outline it. If we give 30 minutes a day to Bible reading and prayer and 30 minutes to physical activity, we will grow or in our relationship with God and with others, or if we give 30 minutes a day to Bible study, prayer, and meditation, and give another 30 minutes to some kind of physical activity, we will be healthier and happier over the long run. We will be. And our relationship with God will become more real and more dynamic. If we give 20 minutes a day to Bible reading, 10 minutes to Bible memorization and journaling, and 30 minutes to some kind of physical activity, or if we give 30 minutes to meditating on a short passage and journaling, and then another 30 minutes to a prayer walk, or if we give 20 minutes to reading the Bible, 20 minutes to prayer, and and 20 minutes to some physical activity, or if we give 10 minutes to Bible reading, 10 minutes to praying while listening to some contemplative, inspiring music, and, and 40 minutes to some physical activity, or if we pick any one of those routines, or if we vary between them, or if we tweak them and mix them up to satisfy our spiritual appetite, we will experience more of God's presence, we will see more of his life around us through us, and we will grow. I just rattled off about six different options for spending my hour, and I did so intentionally. You notice there are some common tools The Bible, prayer, physical activity. But you can use those tools in whatever way works for you. And by the way, if an hour is too much, start with 15 minutes. And I made up the hour part. The time thing is arbitrary. However, I'm suggesting an hour because let's be honest, it takes some real time to do business with God. And that's the important thing, to do business with God and your own body every day. That's what's necessary. In short, this is how to build a relationship with God. There's no shortcut. The alternative is for us to continue with our busyness and fill up all our time, sun up to sundown, sometimes through the watches of the night, with things that seem to be purposeful and important and grab our attention, things that even seem to give life and meaning at times, but in the long run, they cannot sustain our weight. So this week, Ray Schmidt sent me a newsletter that he gets from a ministry that Ray is connected to. Man alive, Ray, this print is really small. And I wanted to read you just a a short section from this newsletter that comes from a guy named uh, John Eldridge, talking about his week, really an experience he had. I bet you've experienced something like this, if not this exactly. If you haven't experienced this exactly, you've experienced the first cousin of this. He says, first, a friend shared with me how much he enjoyed a podcast by a thoughtful NPR commentator, and the nuggets of insight were impressive. A few hours later, a different friend mentioned how much they were getting out of another podcast. I thought to myself, I'd better subscribe to those. They sound really good, and I I feel like I'm, I'm keeping out of touch with the trends around me. That afternoon, his wife said something about some world news event that she had just read about, and I thought, wow, I'm not keeping up with global happenings. I'd better do more of that now. During a meeting the next day, someone makes a reference to a well-known ministry when everyone else at the table nods as if they know the story, and I'm wondering, wow, I have no idea what's going on in the church. I need to keep up. 
Meanwhile, during the same meeting, everyone has, is checking their cell phones for messages and updates and news. He goes on. Then he says this. The cumulative effect of all of this, and I am describing a fairly benign and ordinary week, was to have a large part of me feeling woefully ill-informed and grossly out of touch with all sorts of important matters. Shame was not far behind, followed by that scrambling we all do to get back on top of things. But another part of me, a deeper part, meanwhile was pushing back wondering how in creation do these people have a life with God and care for their souls in the midst of this barrage of media input and global information and social analysis and prophetic teaching and ministry news, not to mention minute-by-minute updates from their hundreds of friends on Facebook. How does any human being care for their soul in, in a frenzied moment like ours? And the simple answer is... They don't. Last paragraph. It's beyond all practical possibilities. However, the ongoing deluge of intriguing facts and commentary scandal and crisis, genuinely important guidance, combined with the latest insider news from across the globe and our friends' personal lives gives the soul a medicated feeling of awareness, connection, and meaning. It confuses the soul into a state of artificial meaning and purpose, all the while preventing genuine soul care and life with God. Let me say it again because it is so counter to the social air we we breathe. What has become the normal daily consumption of input is numbing the soul with artificial meaning and purpose, while in fact the soul grows thinner and thinner through neglect forced by the very madness that passes for a progressive life. Okay, I want us to read a song from somebody who did it differently. And it's just an awesome a song from Psalm 63, and this is King David. And we're going to read the light print together, and then I'm going to read the dark print for us. So we'll read this responsively, and then we're just going to have a few minutes where we're going to contemplate and meditate on Psalm 63. We're going to cogitate. So let's do Psalm 63 together, and I want you to notice how differently King David's rhythm is from what our rhythm often is. And if you would... Out of reverence for God's word, let's stand. Let's read together. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I have a note about that phrase that I want you to hear. Let's start over. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be We need to make note of that. Because you're my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. Those who want to kill me, and these are the circumstances under which David is writing this psalm. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. 
They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. You may be seated. So let's look first at verses 1 and 2. This is not the language of a spiritual seeker, even though David uses this term. This is the language of a lover. Earnestly I seek you, and here's what I want to highlight about that. The word translated earnestly seek, listen to this, is the Hebrew word shehar. It's a relative, it comes from the word shahar, which means dawn or early day. That's why some translations of this in English render this verse early I seek you. Think of our proverb, the early bird gets the worm. This is exactly the sense that this verb communicates. The early bird literally goes out early because she is so intent and so diligent and so earnest. David is addressing both the passion of his heart, his earnestness, but he's also leaking out his habit of seeking God first thing as of first importance every day. I thirst for you, he says here, and here he undresses the universal need for God that is so often unrecognized by us as we launch into our day unprepared. This is the universal need that Jesus addressed directly when he told us that he could give us living water. And finally, notice David has experienced God in the context of corporate worship. That's why we gather in the sanctuary, he says. The same can be true for us. Jesus told us at one point in his teaching that whenever two or three of us were gathered together, he would be there. Now, here's the thing. He's always here, but when we gather together, he's here in a special way. Let's go to verses 3 and 4. In verses 3 and 4, David goes further, doesn't he? Better because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. Is this our testimony? It was Paul's testimony. Look at Paul's testimony. For me to live is Christ and to die, that would be gain. This has been the testimony of faithful Christ followers over the centuries. His love is everything. And when that becomes true for us, we are sustained through the most difficult times and our lives become marked by the increasing capacities to love and to joy and to peace and to patience and to kindness and to goodness and to self-control. Let's go to verses 6 and 8 finally. What I really want us to notice in verse 6 is, well, this is, of course, poetic language, but I have no doubt that David means this literally. The watches of the night refers to the hours during the night when watchmen were making their rounds around the capital. Now, perhaps David is kept awake through the watches of the night by the concerns of a mind racing with the, the burdens of the day. Perhaps he's the kind of leader who doesn't need much sleep. Or perhaps he's awakened at each change of the guard through the night as they signal, all clear. Whatever the case, look at David's habit. Look at how he spends this time. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. So every watch of the night comes and I remember you and I praise you and I give my burdens to you. He prays this way through the night at each watch, David cries out to God. What if I told you, give yourself enough time every day in order to do some serious business with God and you will feel better over the long haul. 
emotionally, physically, spiritually. Not every day, but you will feel better. You will grow. You will be more in sync with yourself and with God. Your relationships will grow. You will, over time, become a better person as you grow more loving, more kind and good, more faithful and gentle and self-controlled. You will become more like God. What if I told you, follow this directive every day and you will actually do that? Well, that would mean we should throw our best efforts into building this kind of habit, a daily habit. That would mean we should throw our best at accommodating this. So why don't more of us do it consistently? He paused for awkward silence. Do we not really believe it? Or are we so out of control of our own lives and our own emotions that we just can't? Why don't we? And what are we willing to do to test this hypothesis in our lives? We need to at least drop down the alternative. I had someone fairly recently tell me that they do this. Someone who did not volunteer to have themselves mentioned this morning. <laughs> I believe them. I've known them for a little while, and this is the habit of their lives and has been for years. They're better than most of us, and they're more disciplined. Listen to this. We had this conversation because they do this, and they were complaining because they're not seeing the results. Or not seeing the results that I'm talking about. I get that complaint. I practice this habit a lot in my life. Not as consistently as I, I wish, but I practice this a lot. And quite often, I feel like I don't experience everything I've just talked about. So after commiserating with this person for, for a while, I just started to wonder. And I was really thinking out loud. I, I wasn't sermonizing. I really wasn't going anywhere. But I, I asked the question, hey, kind of to both of us, I said, hey, what would it be like without this practice? And the next five minutes was magic. I wanted to be a Christian again. I didn't mean for that to be a trump card. I was just thinking out loud it. It turned out to be a significant question for both of us. After thinking for a couple of minutes of real silence, this person said, well, I'd certainly be more worried. And I'd be angrier. I know it because I'm an angry person. And you know what? I've been able to avoid some mistakes that I know I would have made. And they went through a couple of those mistakes. And they would have made them. <laughs> And they went on to tell me some mistakes, and after our time together, I was inspired and rejuvenated. I accepted Jesus again. <laughs> this stuff works. So, let's end. Lent is coming, and we need to use Lent this year. Let's talk about that in a second. First of all, let's acknowledge this habit this hypothesis, this deal, is why when the disciples looked at Jesus and they said, Jesus, we just don't connect like you do. Teach us to pray. Jesus said this. Okay, here's what you say. Do something like this. Father in heaven, you are epically awesome and holy and fantastic. Look, 
your sovereign control the way you want things to happen. I pray that that would be the case in my life, as true as it is in heaven. And then he says this, Give us this day our daily bread. When you pray, go to the Father, tell Him how awesome He is, worship Him gladly, and then say, give me today, because I can't handle Thursday. So give me today my daily bread. That's why Jesus, when He's talking to a group of His followers, He's talking to them about what it means to follow Him. And He says, okay, if you really want to know, here's the deal. If you want to follow me, then you've got to deny yourself, become a different person, allow me to come in and take up your cross, take up the habit of following me and the habit of laying down your life daily and follow me. And I want you to know also, this is not an individual isolated thing. This is a corporate deal. Hebrews tells us this. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, because that's the kind of heart we have. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today. So you get a break there. You get to stop encouraging one another the day that it's not called today. So Lent is coming. And this is a perfect time to re-up on the habit of spending time with God, or to start it from scratch. I know most of us, we're not dialed into that. You're thinking, Lent? Yes. We practice Lent at Gateway, and it starts this week on Wednesday. So let me give you some quick notes for Lent. Number one, this Wednesday, we have an Ash Wednesday service here. And it's a sweet, intimate service of worship. It's neat. So make that your hour on Wednesday. I know you don't have time. You don't not have time to do this. Remember the alternative. Seriously, come on Wednesday and kick off Lent. Secondly, I want you to give up something and replace it with doing business with God during Lent. That's typically what the church has done historically over the years. And those of you, especially who grew up in liturgical traditions, those of you especially who grew up in Catholic tradition, you gave up fish or you gave up chocolate or something. And when you were a little kid, this was our attitude. Because you were so godly and spiritual, this was our attitude about giving up something on Lent, wasn't it? When our boys were little, frequently during Lent, we'd give up television. And our kids were so godly and God-honoring about that, their attitude was something like, this year Diane and I are giving up television again because we want time to do business with God. Give it, let's give up something. Let's sacrifice something for God and replace it with doing business with Him. Third, I want you to join me beginning next week, not tomorrow, but a week from Monday, we're going to pray every day during Lent at 1 o'clock for one minute for the challenge that God has laid before us in finishing off the building that God is building for us across the street. So we're going to play at 1 o'clock for one minute for our challenge. And you'll hear more about it by email this week, and you'll hear quite a bit more from me next week. I'm going to explain this next week. Finally, sign up for the Bible class. You're thinking... Holy smokes, Ed. Spending 30 minutes reading the Bible in the morning. Come on, I barely understand it. Legit. Seriously, legit. Go to the Bible class. It's worth it. It's worth it to do this work. To do this work with God, it takes an investment. Sign up. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord.
you have made a way for us to know you and to relate to you. We have heard you speak this morning, and now we want to obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks for coming.